You know, a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Colorado Springs for the Evangelical Theological Society. And it was held at the Broadmoor Hotel, which is one of the, one of the most magnificent hotels, if not the most magnificent hotel, hotel west of the Mississippi. And I was fortunate enough to have a room that looked out over the, the Rocky Mountains, and I'd never seen the Rocky Mountains before. And every morning I would get up and I would drink a cup of coffee out on my porch, even though it was November and a little bit chilly, and I would look out over the rugged terrain and the sheer majestic beauty of that mountain range. And then in the evening, before I would meet uh, colleagues for dinner, I would go back to my room to freshen up, and, and I would go back out on that porch and I would watch the, the sun beginning to set. And I was stunned by the enormity of that mountain range. And as I looked on it, I I reflected on the fact that Jesus used mountains to talk about prayer. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21, verses 21 and 22, Jesus said this, Then Jesus told them, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. You can pray for anything, and if you have faith, you will receive it. I knew that Jesus was speaking hyperbolically, that Jesus isn't in the excavation business. He was talking about the mountains of life. Uh, But he used something that that seems so immovable, and literally is immovable a mountain, to communicate to the disciples the great potential and power of prayer. And so when I looked out on that, on that beautiful, rugged terrain that we call the, the Rocky Mountains, and I, I reflected on this passage, uh, I thought about the fact that although Jesus was speaking hyperbolically, what Jesus was saying was, God can do the impossible when His people pray. You know, for most of us, when we think about mountain-moving prayer, it leaves us with a sense of hopelessness and despair. We know that we have some mountains in our lives, and it's not like we haven't prayed about them. But frankly, we've come to the settled conclusion, although we don't think it consciously, we think it subconsciously, mountain-moving prayer, it really doesn't work. When we talk about mountains, some of, some of us have some things that come immediately to mind. For some of you, your marriage is a mountain. You contemplate the day when, when you stood before a, a pastor and you committed yourselves to one another and You had unbelievable dreams and hopes and aspirations as a couple. You felt like that you had the most wonderful years of life in front of you. But now years into your marriage, you've you've sunken into a routine, and all you see is that your mountain has become a marriage. You lay down at night, and you turn your backs toward one another. What began with a a kiss and a prayer ends 
in silence and anger. And it's not like you haven't prayed about it. It's not like that you haven't gone to classes, which are very, very important, and read books on it, but, but it just seems like this is a mountain that can't be moved. Or maybe when we talk about mountains in life, a daughter comes to your mind. And if you think back, you think back to the songs that you used to sing, the dances that you danced in the living room at night with her. You think back to the vacation Bible schools that you took her to. You think back to the family vacations and the hugs and the kisses and all that goes along with the, the, with the heartfelt joy that a child can bring into, the, into a home. But, but now all you have is heartache and despair. Not only is your daughter a long, long way from God, but she's not very close to you either. In fact, you haven't even spoken to her in weeks. And it's not that you don't love her. You just wonder, what's the use? Because you know where she's been. You've know, you know what she does. And you've prayed some prayers. And they seem to have fallen on deaf ears. For others of you, your mountain is a career. It's a career path. It's a trajectory that, that you... We're on, and then children came in, and life got derailed, and you weren't able to take the career path that you wanted because you had, you had children to feed. You had a house note to pay, but you never, you never got to go to medical school. You never got to, to go into to law. You never became the engineer that you wanted, and when you when you get up in the morning, you don't look forward to what you're going to do. It's a drudgery. It's a, it's a heartache. and It's not unusual for you to, to get out the calculator and to figure out how much money you're going to get from Social Security when you reach 68 years of age. And then you realize, I've got 38 years to go. <laughs> 38 years of getting up. 38 years of feeling like my life is not what I had hoped it would be. My career isn't headed where I wanted it to be. And all you're doing is surviving. And you're not even surviving very well. For some of us, that mountain is our relationship to God. That relationship was once passionate and zealous there's, there's nowhere we wouldn't go and there's nothing we wouldn't do for God's glory. And we felt the sunshine of His presence in our soul day in and day out. But now, now our soul is kind of cold, lifeless. And it's been so long since we felt the sunshine of God's presence in our lives that We've started just going through the motions. It's not that we've dropped out. We just don't expect much. It's not that we don't attend. It's just 
we've lowered our expectations. And it's certainly not that we haven't prayed about it. It's just we've stopped praying. We stopped praying a long, long time ago because it just seems like God didn't hear my prayers. I listen to the testimony of others. I'd read the books about uh, the people with prayer lives that were vibrant and stalwart. And, and I tried, and we worked at it, but it, it just doesn't work for us. We don't know anything about mountain-moving prayer. You know, the disciples are described as having said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, maybe they said at some point, it's not recorded, so we don't know that they said it, teach us how to cast out demons. Teach us how to heal the blind. Teach us how to multiply fish and bread. Teach us how to to preach captivating sermons that mesmerize literally thousands of people. Maybe they ask him those things, but we don't have any record of it. What we do have a record of is them crying out, Lord, teach us to pray. It's in the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. Turn over to Luke chapter 11 with me because you're going to need your Bible and we're we're going to spend pretty good bit of time this morning in the Gospel of Luke. I want you to look with me in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. And I'm going to have you do something that I regularly ask you to do and I ask my my classes to do it. I want you to underline or circle a word. Every time pray, praying, or prayer is mentioned, why don't you just underline it this morning? Why don't you make a note of it this morning? Put an asterisk by it this morning. You will be stunned, shocked, overwhelmed, flabbergasted at how Luke focuses on how much Jesus prayed. Look with me in chapter 11, verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray... Now, the interesting thing about all these verses we're going to look at, and we're going to look at a lot of verses over the next few minutes, we're not going to spend much time commenting on any single one because I want them to be something like a tsunami, just like a massive wave that just overwhelms us. I want us to be overwhelmed by the references to Jesus praying. But you might think, why why the Gospel of Luke? Well, you know, Matthew and Mark describe Jesus praying three times. Luke describes Jesus praying at every important moment of his life. When Luke wrote about Jesus, there was something about prayer that captured his attention, that fascinated him, that caused him never to miss an opportunity to remind his readers that Jesus was a man of prayer. It begins in Luke chapter 3. Turn to Luke chapter 3 with me. Luke chapter 3. It's the baptism of Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe Jesus being baptized. 
but the only one that actually records the fact that while Jesus was being baptized is Luke. You read Matthew and you mark, they describe Jesus being baptized, but look in chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. So John the Baptist is plunging him beneath the waters of the Jordan. And what's he doing? His eyes are closed. He's taking a deep breath. And he's calling out to God from the depths of his heart. Look with me in chapter 5 and verse 16. Chapter 5 and verse 16. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, Luke writes, But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. It was his habit. It was a part of the fabric of his being. It's the way that he did life. In fact, you get the idea as you work your way through Luke's gospel. He didn't believe he could do life without prayer. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Jesus Christ, our sinless Savior, felt the absolute necessity to find a lonely place out in the wilderness and to spend time in prayer. Look with me in chapter 6 and verse 12. Chapter 6 and verse 12. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all describe Jesus choosing 12 men to be his closest disciples, and and literally 11 of them became apostles. But only Luke tells us that before he chose them, he spent the entire night in prayer to God. Look in verse 12 with me. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. What's Luke saying? Luke is saying that he wrestled all night in prayer to God, discerning from God whom God had chosen to be his 12 closest disciples, uh, to be the 12 men that he would spend the most time with. We might wonder, well, he's God. He's omniscient. Uh, Why didn't he just know it? Well, we don't know that. All we know is that he spent an entire night praying, and as soon as the day began to break, he chose 12 of them. And this is Luke's way of communicating to us. This is the way you choose leaders. You don't look for who gives the most money, who's been in the church the longest, who's got the best personality, who do people seem to follow. It's not even, in fact, our decision to make. It's God's decision. Our responsibility is to discern whom God has placed his hand upon, and allow the choice to be God's. Look with me in chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 18, Luke describes the events at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a a city about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's, It's where the headwaters of the Jordan River begin. And Jesus took the disciples there, and he's going he's to give them a quiz. He's going to ask them, who do, the, who do the people say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And then he's going to turn it 
and put the spotlight on them and say, who do, you, who do you say that I am? Matthew describes this. Mark describes this. Luke describes this. Luke's the only one that tells us that before Jesus asked them that question, he had been praying. And the implication is he had been praying that God would take their minds and illuminate them to understand who he really was. Look in verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, which is kind of an odd thing, isn't it? He knew what it was like to walk with God and to be in the presence of God, and he could be in the midst of a group of people, and yet, well, there's a lot of commotion going on. He, he knew how to be in fellowship with God. And Jesus questioned them, saying, who do the people say that I am? And they give the usual answers, and, and then he says, but who do you say that I am? In verse 20, and Peter says, you are the Christ of God. It's the first time in Luke's gospel that one of his close followers acknowledged him to be the Messiah. Matthew doesn't tell us Jesus was praying, but Matthew tells us this, which corroborates what I've just said, that Jesus had been praying that they would understand who he was. After Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew says, and flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... God himself opened Peter's eyes, spiritual eyes, to see that Jesus was the Messiah. Now think about this for a moment. They had already heard him preach mesmerizing sermons. They had seen him perform unheard of miracles. They had spent time with him more intimately than any people had spent time with him over the previous two years, and yet a mesmerizing preaching, captivating miracles, couldn't open up the heart and the minds for them to understand who he really was. Only God could do that. This ought to be a, on side note, a key moment about parenting. You can catechize your children. We catechized our children from the age of three. You can bring your children to Awana and they can memorize a plethora of verses. Catechizing is very important. I'm all for it. Awana, I'm behind it 100%. You can have family devotions. You can have family devotions every single night. You can pray over your children as they go to bed at night, as we would pray over our children. Lord, Lydia's not a Christian. She doesn't know Jesus. Open her heart. Because although we can do all the right things, and we should, we are still absolutely, completely dependent on Almighty God causing them to see the reality of their own sinfulness and the absolute necessity of a Savior. So what's Jesus praying? Jesus is praying what sermons can't do. Jesus is praying what miracles 
couldn't accomplish, and that is to turn on the spiritual light bulb for a person to see Jesus is who he claims to be. Well, look with me in verse 28. In verse 28, about eight days after Caesarea Philippi, Jesus goes up on a mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe this event, and you probably already know what I'm going to say. Luke's the only one that tells us Jesus went there to pray. Mark says he went up on the mountain. Matthew says he went up on the mountain. Luke is in, he's captivated by the fact that at every moment Jesus is praying. So here in verse 28, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. If we read on, there was Moses and Elijah were there. They talked to Jesus about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. But for us, for this morning, it's substantial to know, why did, he, why did he go up there? He went up there to pray, and while he was praying, he was changed. There was the manifestation of his pre-incarnate glory. Turn with me over one chapter to chapter 10. In chapter 10, we actually hear, we actually hear Jesus praying. He's not just described as praying, we hear him praying. You only hear him praying one time in Matthew and in, in uh, Mark, but we hear him praying several times in Luke's gospel. Verse 21, at that very moment, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. There is an explosion of heartfelt praise that's directed to the Father, and, and that's a prayer. Turn with me over to chapter 11. You'll notice in chapter 11, this is where we started. Jesus has just finished praying. The disciples say, teach us to pray, and then he says, when you pray. Turn with me over to chapter 22. Look with me in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, verse 17 and 19. Verse 17 says, and when Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks. He took, in verse 17, a cup at the, in the upper room, and just before they drink the cup, he offers thanks to God for it. Look in verse 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, there it is again. Jesus thanked God for the cup and the bread. Now, that's what we do when we, when we offer up prayers over a meal. The, the main part of the prayer, they don't need to be long, they need to be, uh, they need to be appropriate, but they ought to be prayers of thanksgiving because there are hundreds of millions of Christians who are much better Christians than we are. Far exceed us 
in sanctification. Who will go to bed hungry every single night? They look like they look like people in concentration camps. They're so thin and gaunt. And even when I'm forced to eat a gluten-free meal, which isn't very often, I need to thank God for it because it's a gift from His hand. Look with me in verse 41. I'm sorry, verse 31. Look with me in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan has asked God, can he take you and shake you violently? And God has said, yes, he can. Sifting of wheat was a violent act, and the the imagery is a, a depiction where Satan himself assaults Peter. And we know that Peter denied Jesus three times, but, but notice in the very next verse, but I've prayed for you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all describe it. Only Luke tells us that Jesus prayed for him. Well, you don't understand. I believe in the sovereignty of God. What will be, will be. Well, that's stupid. It's stupid to say you believe in the sovereignty of God if you don't pl- pray because God has ordained the end and the means to the end. And the means to the end was Jesus praying for Peter that his faith would not ultimately and completely fail. You have to wonder how many young Christians who genuinely give their heart to Jesus and begin the Christian life with heartfelt devotion are left without anybody to disciple them, teach them, train them, and pray for them. Look with me in chapter 23, or actually 22, verse 41. Here we get to hear Jesus pray again in verse 41. Let me go to verse 40. Verse 40 says, When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Look with me in verse 45, or actually 44. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. Verse 45, when he rose from prayer... Verse 46, and he said, why are, you, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have that phrase, pray that you not enter into temptation, but Luke has it twice. He's the only one that has it twice. He says at the beginning of Gethsemane, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He says at the end of Gethsemane, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He has it in the Lord's Prayer. That we not be led into temptation, but delivered from the evil one. Many of us stumble and fall over and over again for lack of prayer. There's something about prayer and warfare and holiness that's, that's all wrapped up together. Look with me in chapter 23. On the cross, 
having been impaled on the cross, hanging there very likely naked before those whom he created, writhing in agony and anguish, almost on the verge of going into shock, probably in and out of consciousness. What does he do? In verse 34, he says, Father, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Then he takes one final breath, and he says, if you'll look with me in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So in this whirlwind tour of the Gospel of Luke, it's quite impressive, isn't it? I think Luke was infatuated with prayer because he had spent so much time with the Apostle Paul. And if you read through the book of Acts, in almost every single chapter, with very few exceptions, there is someone described as praying, and often it's a group of people praying. So as Luke traveled with Paul, and he heard Paul praying, and he saw the church praying, when he began to write about the life of Jesus, and he had never met Jesus... So he began to read about it, and he began to talk to people, and he began to reflect on it. He was stunned and struck by how faithful Jesus was to pray. Jesus and prayer in Luke's gospel. Well, what do we learn from this as we begin our journey that we're going to take over the next several weeks about praying big prayers? Let me say several things as we conclude. The first one is this. If you write anything down, write this one down. Prayer is more than a discipline to be mastered. It's a relationship to be nurtured and developed. Prayer is more than a discipline to be mastered. It is a relationship to be nurtured and developed. Now, it is a spiritual discipline. But for some of us, we subconsciously fall into the fall into the trap, prayed, check, read the Bible, check, off I go into the end of the day, having done my two most important spiritual disciplines. And it easily becomes a discipline to be mastered. Look at this, I've prayed for 37 consecutive days. I've mastered the discipline of prayer. But prayer isn't a discipline to be mastered, it is primarily a relationship to be nurtured. Could you imagine if I fell into the, into, the, into the rut that I've just described in my relationship with Jaylen? Kissed Jaylen on the cheek today, gave her a hug, checked it off, off I go. I don't think about her the rest of the day. I don't text her during the day. I don't call her during the day. I come home. I said, listen, I've, I've already checked it off today. I kissed you on the way out. I gave you a hug. I'm going to go out for a walk. I'm going to go to my study. I'm going to watch the ball game. Uh, you know my wife, that wouldn't go over very well. It wouldn't just wouldn't go over very well because it's a relationship that is to be continually nurtured and out of that nurturing, depth develops. And so I text her during the day and she texts me during the day. When she gets a, when she gets a moment and she, she'll look and see what my schedule is, she'll give me a call and we'll talk during the day for just a few minutes. 
And then in the evenings, almost every evening, we take a walk together. And we walk around the street, and she tells me about her day, and, and, uh, and then she'll ask the right questions and drag out of me how my day, how, how my day was. Because she knows I'm just more reserved. She's more gregarious. She's got a personality. I lack a personality. And, and so she just <laughs> develops and nurtures it. And she said, well, just tell me, how did, who did you talk with after class today? And, oh, you know, I, I saw Dr. Sills today. I saw David after class today. And we talked about where he's headed to. And fantastic, good. And everything going all right. And, yeah, they moved into a house. And, and who else did you see today? Well, you know, Dr. Betts, TJ, was coming down the hallway. He stopped in, sat down. We talked for a little while. And she said, well, what would you talk about? And our relationship develops and matures and it, and it, as it's nurtured. Prayer is more than a discipline to be mastered. It is a relationship to be nurtured and developed. Second, prayer isn't something that you do in the morning. It's something that you do all day long. Now, it is something that you do in the morning. But the morning is just getting the day kicked off right. What we're looking for is all-pervasive prayer, a life filled with prayer. Praying without ceasing is the way that Paul talked about it. Because when you develop a life of all-pervasive prayer, you're ready to pray in those monumental moments. See, a lot of us, we're monumental moment prayers only. We're crisis prayers we, like to, we, we wait till the whole ship's about to sink, and then we, then we start calling out to God, save my marriage, reach my daughter, help us, help us find the, the money to meet these bills. And sometimes God is gracious and kind and caring, and, and he'll answer those, those prayers, but often, often he will use those moments to teach us that prayer is a lifestyle and not a moment. And he wants to teach us that, that a, lot of, a lot of prayers that take place in crises could be avoided by a lifestyle of prayer. There's an all-pervasive nature of prayer in the life of Jesus. In every important moment of his life and in between, he would slip away to the lonely places and pray. At his baptism, he prayed. Before he chose the twelve, he prayed. Before he asked them, who do you say that I am, he prayed. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he prayed. In between those times, he would slip away into the wilderness and he would pray. It needs to be all pervasive. Let me mention two more. Intercessory prayer played an important role in Jesus' life. But it's, it's absolutely right and appropriate to pray for ourselves and to ask God to do certain things in us and for us. Absolutely, he gives us the privilege and the responsibility and the opportunity to do that. But intercessory prayer played an important role in his life. He prayed for his followers. He interceded on their behalf. And intercessory prayer should be a part of our praying. And what I hope to do in the, over the next several weeks is to show you how to become the most effective intercessory prayer warrior you can be and how I can help myself to become an even more effective prayer warrior by taking my own advice. And then finally, Jesus was willing to have God say no 
if it meant greater glory for God. He was willing to allow God to say no if it meant greater glory to God. Father, if possible, let this cup cup pass from me. Yet, not my will, but thy will be done. God said no to the first prayer, yes to the second prayer. No, I will not take the cup. Yes, I will do my will in your in your life. Jesus was willing to have a prayer go unanswered for God to say no. And we'll talk about in the next few weeks, we'll talk about what do we do when God says no and why does he say no to some of our prayers. Well, it may be this morning you're thinking, you know, I really, (laughs) the pastor thinks, I really, I really need to hear these messages on prayer. Because just to be quite honest, my prayer life isn't up to snuff. It's not where I would want it to be. Well, maybe what you'll do in just a moment, Craig's going to lead us in, in, uh, in worship. We're going to stand. We're going to have a time of commitment. Maybe at some point you'll just stop quietly in your heart, unobtrusively, just close your eyes and just say, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, use the next several weeks in my life to help me become a man or woman of prayer. For some of you, if you're looking for a church home, we'd invite you to come forward, speak to one of our staff members here at the front, and we'll introduce you to someone that can walk you through the membership process. Or, or maybe, maybe you're that mountain in someone else's life. Maybe you're that spouse or that daughter or son. And you realize I've caused unbelievable heartache and disappointment to my family and more importantly to God. And I'd like to get my life turned around. But I just don't even know where to begin. We're going to invite you to come forward. We're not going to embarrass you. Uh, We'll just talk with you privately and confidentially about where you're at and how we can be of assistance to you. I'm going to ask if you'll stand. I'll lead us in a word of prayer and Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are kind and patient because none of us are where we ought to be and all of us are on the journey of becoming uh, more faithful prayer warriors. And so we pray in Jesus' name that beginning today and going through the next several weeks that there will be a, a rising tide among us of faithful prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.